John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18 is what we'll be looking at this morning. Now through the Gospel of John, as we've been looking at it, uh, kind of paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter, we've been meeting various people. So there at the beginning you have John with this uh, introduction, this prologue, proclaiming who Jesus is. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, He came to His own, and yet His own did not receive Him. They rejected Him. But to all who did receive Him, He gave the right to become children of God. And then, after that prologue, we begin meeting different people. We meet John the Baptist, the one who proclaims, I'm I'm not the one. I'm the one just proclaiming the message of the one who is to come. I must decrease, but He must increase. He is the one, not me. And then we meet all sorts of other people. We meet all sorts of people who need God's grace. People who come from different backgrounds, different circumstances. We meet Nicodemus, a leader among the Jews, and he needs to be born again. Remember that? You must be born again. If you want to see the kingdom, if you want to receive the kingdom, if you want to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. We meet someone who is as different as possibly can be from Nicodemus in the Samaritan woman, the sinful Samaritan woman by the well. Right? She needed living water. She needed Jesus. We meet, after that, the royal official. The one who comes to Jesus and says, please help my son, come back and heal my son. And Jesus speaks the words and he is healed. He believes First in the miracle, and then he believes, he and his household believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, and in believing that, they have life in his name. Remember, that's why John is writing. So that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior, and in believing that, that we might have life in his name. Now, today we meet uh, someone else. We meet... Someone who's paralyzed. Man, he's been paralyzed for 38 years. Maybe your version says he's an invalid. He's helpless. And we meet him in our story today. And this story particular is meant to illustrate the growing divide between Jesus and the religious leaders. This growing chasm, this growing divide between Jesus and those who oppose him. And actually, the next couple of chapters, we'll see this. We'll see it getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And we should ask ourselves, the readers of this text, John wanted them to ask, them, ask themselves, and he wants us to ask ourselves, which side are we on of that divide? Whose side are we on? Let's look at verses 1 through 18 of chapter 5. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one who had been there, who had been an invalid for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, Get up! 
Pick your mat up and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless us now as we hear your word. Put it deep down into our hearts that it would sprout and grow and bear fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I kind of want to separate, uh, kind of want to hit this from three different uh, points. Looking at verses 1 through 7, this is just kind of help you uh, to go along as we look through this passage. 1 through 7, we see this man who is absolutely helpless. He's in need. In verses 8 through 15, we, however, see Jesus, the one he needs, his, this powerful voice which speaks to him. And in 16 to 18, we see the angry leaders. We see this, this growing divide beginning to take shape. So look first at verses 1 through 7. Jesus, uh, sometime later, we don't know how much later, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish feasts. Now, John doesn't explain all the details of this. He doesn't explain what, uh, when it was. He doesn't, doesn't explain what feast exactly that was taking place, but it was one of the Jewish festivals. And there's a sheep gate. Uh, at the Sheep Gate, there's a pool. It's called Bethesda, uh, which means House of Mercy. And it's surrounded by five, uh, this pool is surrounded by five covered colonnades. So uh, what we have, we don't really know exactly what the pools were used for. They may have been used for washing sheep or other animals as they were taken into uh, the temple to be sacrificed. Uh, they may have been used for, for other bathing purposes. Uh, here it looks like a place to hang out, a place where people who couldn't get well just by the normal means of visiting a doctor, the blind, the lame, uh, those who were paralyzed, they, they had exhausted all their options. And so here in this text we see that a huge number, just a ton of people here who are blind, lame, paralyzed, have gathered together and they used to lay there near these pools. Um, so the, well, from kind of excavations and archaeology we found, we think it's, there were two pools there. And they were covered on all sides with these colonnades. If you don't know it, it's just kind of like a shelter. Uh, these pillars going up with a shelter over top surrounding these two pools. So imagine kind of a rectangle shape. You've got one colonnade here, one here, one here, and one here, and one in the middle, but separating the two pools. So these tons of people, invalids, laying here underneath uh, these colonnades to get shade, uh, hanging out by the pool. Why, why were there so, so many people here? We don't know exactly the reason, but it looks like um, they thought that there was something healing about these pools. There was something 
therapeutic maybe about these pools. Some have even speculated that there was uh, some um, supernatural events taking place. There was some superstitions about uh, perhaps an angel coming down and stirring the waters and the first one who got into to the pool after the angel stirred them up would be healed. They'd be miraculously healed. Uh, some have said maybe what had caused the stirring of the, the pools were that these pools were fed by some sort of mineral springs. Uh, and so the, the, whenever the, it would, the water would seep in, there would be stirrings in the water and people would, would want to get in there to, to take part in that therapeutic uh, water. But notice uh, the helplessness of this man. Verse 5. He is totally helpless. One who had been an invalid, paralyzed for 38 years. Can you imagine the suffering he must have been through? He was paralyzed, and on top of that, he, it appears he had no close friends. Right? Jesus says, do you want to get well? And he responds, well, I have nobody to put me into the pool, and I'm too, too slow, I can't get there in time. I can't walk, I can't move very well. He needed help. He was totally helpless. It's interesting that Jesus, out of all this mass of people, Jesus picks this one out. He chooses this man to talk to. Jesus' question, you'll notice in verse 6, do you want to get well? Now, that seems like a strange question. Why do you ask me that? But even more interesting is uh, the response in verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now what's interesting about this response is that this is his only hope. He's exhausted every other possibility. Perhaps he's gone to doctors and they, they could do nothing for him. He's been like this for a very long time. Actually, he's been like this longer than many people in the ancient world would have even lived. 38 years. He's helpless. And his only hope, his only hope in his mind is that he might, when the waters are stirred, he might somehow be there at the right place at the right time and get into the water first and be healed. See, the actual problem here was that he was looking for a wrong cure. He was totally helpless, but he was looking for cures in the wrong places. You can uh, look through history, and for thousands of years, people have been um, searching for something called the fountain of youth. Have you ever heard that? Now, some of it's myth, some of it's real, where people were actually trying to look for this fountain of youth, where if they could bathe in this fountain of youth or drink from this fountain of youth, they would miraculously live a long, long time, stay young forever. Right? Don't you wish that was true? See, there's this problem. We age. We get older. And some of us know this more than others. I think when you... Now, some of you are going to laugh at me, but when you hit about 30, you start to begin to feel it. Some of you are like, what are you talking about, you young buck? But we age. And we don't search for the fountain of youth, but we do try to do other things to keep ourselves young, right? We have makeup. We have clothes. We try all kinds of workout programs and fat loss programs, diet plans. We want to stay young because we know as we get older that, well, we know one thing, one problem we all are going to face is death. It may come young, it may come old. But the whole world is searching for a cure to this problem, to the problem of aging, to the problem of death. We're all searching for a cure. And we're all searching in the wrong places. We're all looking to the outward things that can make us look young. That can hopefully preserve our youth for a little bit longer. 
The whole world is actually doing this. The whole world is helpless and searching for a cure in all the wrong places. You know, in the spiritual realm, we're, we're all helpless in the same way. We're all spiritually helpless. And I think uh, throughout the Gospels, Jesus' physical healings are also meant to teach us something spiritual. Right? The raising of Lazarus from the dead, I think it's meant to teach us more than the fact that Jesus can raise the physically dead. It's meant to teach us that we are dead and we need Jesus to speak to us and raise us from the dead. And here we are spiritually helpless. The whole world is spiritually helpless. Sinfully helpless. Separated from God, helpless. And we're all looking for the wrong kind of cure. So we look for performance. Maybe if I can do this, maybe if I can work a little bit harder for God, then He will accept me. He'll be happy with this hard work. He'll be happy with at least my, my giving it all, my trying my best. We all fall into this trap of thinking we can somehow earn God's favor. And so when I was in the Philippines, they had uh, these probably over a hundred steps leading up to a statue of the Mother Mary and the baby Jesus. And as they went up these steps, they would, some would kneel on each one and say a little prayer, asking God to forgive them because of, of their work of going through this ritual. And then when they got to the top, they would burn incense, burn candles all around the statue of Mary. Now we don't do that, but there are many other ways that we try to show God that we're giving it our all so that He might accept us. So He might see some worth in something we've done and say, ah, now you've finally done it. Now I will receive you. This is looking for the wrong cure. This is looking in completely the wrong place. Or perhaps... We'll, do it in, we'll look for the cure in, in positive thinking, in naming, name it, claim it type of theology. See, some preachers will say, your problem is that you think too lowly of yourself. What you need to do is think positively. Think that your wallet will be full of money, and it will, if only it worked that way, right? Think that you're going to have success in your life. Just think it. Stop with all those negative thoughts and think positive thoughts, and then all these things will take place. There are some popular preachers preaching that. And that is looking for the cure in the wrong place. It's a lie. It's not scriptural. We look for cures in all the wrong places. Our society, many in our culture, are looking for the cure to sin and death in pleasure. We're going to die, so you might as well live it up while you're here on this earth. While you have life, get as much pleasure as you possibly can. This is what our world thinks. We're all looking for the cure in the wrong place, just like this man was. He knew he was helpless. He knew he had no hope, but he was looking for the cure in the wrong place. And little did the man know that his cure was right there in front of him. That what he needed more than anything else was right there in front of him speaking to him. It's like the woman at the well. She didn't know who she was talking to. If you knew who it was who asked you for the water, you would have asked me for water, and I would have given you living water that springs up into eternal life. Jesus is what this man needs more than anything else. His cure was right there in front of him. But look at Jesus' response. Look at the powerful voice. Verses 8 through 15. What does Jesus say to him? He says, Get up! Pick up your mat and walk. 
And at once, look at this amazing miracle, at once, instantaneously, the man gets up, picks up his mat, and walks away. Now what is really amazing about this, and many of the other miracles that Jesus does, is that Jesus tells a lame man to get up and walk. He can't. He's lame. He's invalid. It's like when Jesus speaks to a deaf man and says, Hear. He can't hear Jesus' voice, but then somehow the power of Jesus' voice opens his ears and he can hear. It's like Jesus commanding a blind man, Open your eyes and see. Oh, he can't. He's blind. But the power of Jesus' voice is that he accomplishes what he commands. He does what he intends. We are spiritually dead and helpless in our sins. And as we'll see actually later, look at verse 28. We see, we'll see this next week. Jesus says that one day, and it's going to be pretty soon, all those who are in their graves will hear His voice and come out. So Jesus speaks and the dead are raised to life. They can't hear they can't obey. They can't do anything that would please God. It is, notice the initiative of God in raising up sinners who are dead in their sins. The initiative of God in speaking to this man, His powerful voice, which causes Him to get up. This is, this is kind of, we could make an analogy of how we are given life in Christ. It's not anything that we've done. It's not that we were particularly seeking after Jesus in a particularly... Uh, strenuous way. It's not that we were yearning uh, for Him to save us. He spoke His Word of the good news in the Gospel. And His Holy Spirit gave life to us. He, he woke us up from the dead and caused us to follow Him. And you say, well this invalid, he obeyed Jesus. He got up and walked. Yeah, but he didn't have the power until Jesus spoke it to him. Jesus is the power that he needed. Jesus is the power that we need. He is what we need. He is our cure. Now notice in verses 9 and 10 that John mentions that this took place on the Sabbath day. Now John intends us to understand that this is one of the beginning sources of the friction between, between Jesus and the religious leaders. This is kind of the beginning of the great divide between these two sides. Now, during the period... Uh, the, the Jewish leaders had come up with so many rules that you could not do this or that on the Sabbath day. And we have some evidence that there were 39 of these rules, 39 of these stipulations, 39 things you could not do on the Sabbath day. You know what one of them was? I, I remember a few of them. You could not tie or untie anything on the Sabbath day. You could not uh, write two words or more on the Sabbath day. You couldn't erase two or more words on the Sabbath day. So I guess one was okay, right? It was kind of weird. You couldn't pick something up from your home and transport it to the temple. Uh, you couldn't do all these tiny little stipulations that they came up with, man-made rules really, so that they could try to determine who was righteous and who was not. Who was keeping the Sabbath for real and who wasn't keeping it. All these, these strange and silly rules that they came up with. And here they accuse this man of breaking the Sabbath. You can't pick up your mat and walk around with it on the Sabbath day. You can't do that. That's breaking the Sabbath. Now the man shifts the blame. You see what he says? 
It's not me. I'm not. The man who healed me, he's the one who told me to pick up my mat and walk. I'm just doing what he says. You know, we all like to do that when we caught, get caught doing something wrong. Well, I'm just following the rules. I'm just doing what somebody else told me. But notice Jesus' word in verse 14 as well. This, it sounds kind of strange, in what, what, especially with what we've talked about some in the past weeks. Jesus says to him, he later finds him in the temple and says to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, so it seems here from this text and from a couple others that there are some sins that cause certain illnesses. Not, not that every sin that you do is going to cause some sort of sickness or disease. But at least in this particular case, Jesus is pointing out that his ailment was caused by something that he did. And Jesus is just giving him a warning. Now we know that all sicknesses, death, ultimately they come from sin, from the beginning, right? This is a broken world, this is a fallen world, but it doesn't mean that every ailment that you have is caused by some sin that you have committed. Sometimes you just get sick. It's a part of the fallen world, it's a part of this broken world, but Jesus here warns him. Don't sin anymore. He's, he's actually calling him to repentance. Because it doesn't appear yet that this man has actually bowed the knee to Jesus. He's healed by him, but it doesn't appear yet he has placed his faith in Jesus. And Jesus is warning him. I think ultimately he's warning him there's a judgment coming. Turn away from your sin. Turn from your sin and submit to me. Submit to God. And one thing I want to point out from these verses 8 through 15. What is it that the Jewish leaders focus in on? There's a healing that's taken place. And they focus in on the fact that this man picked up his mat and carried it. The man says, uh, the man who healed me, he told me to pick up my mat and carry it. And the, the Jewish leaders should, should have been like, what? He, he healed you? You were paralyzed for 38 years and he healed you? But no, they focus in on the breaking of this little rule, picking up your mat and walking with it. It's unbelievable. They're focused more on this Sabbath rule that they made up than on the healing, than on the miraculous, than on the amazing thing that took place. And this illustrates the growing divide. Jesus is more concerned about showing compassion than keeping man-made rules. He's more concerned about giving love and helping those in need than he is about satisfying the Jewish leaders who have made up their system of rules so that they can stay in power, so that they can oppress, so that they can exert their power over others. There's a grow, you've seen it in cartoons maybe, where there's this growing crack in the ground and uh, the cartoon character's straddling the, the divide and soon he has to do something, right? He ends up doing a split or whatever, he falls in. There's a growing divide between Jesus and the religious leaders and John is saying to these people, which side? You can't straddle it forever. Which side are you going to choose? He's saying to us, which side are you going to be on? Are you going to be with Jesus? Or are you going to be with the world? And we can clearly see who the right side is here, but often we're found to be on the wrong side. Really, this is a great divide from the very beginning between God and the ways of this world. Between God and the serpent, you remember in the Garden of Eden? Between Cain and Abel? Between Moses and Pharaoh? Between Elijah and the prophets of Baal? 
between David and Goliath, this chasm between God and the ways of God and the ways of this world. And this growing divide is ultimately going to lead not like in David, Goliath, with David conquering the evil one and uh, him winning the day and Israel, uh, Israel having their land back. Unlike all these other conflicts, this one between Jesus and the Jewish leaders will end in a way that is totally shocking to the disciples. Totally heartbreaking to the disciples. Because this growing conflict ends with Jesus' death. Unlike all these other conflicts, in this one, Jesus will win by losing. He will gain victory by being defeated. This is what Jesus came to do. Fulfill this purpose that God had for him. To fulfill the forgiveness of sins. To fulfill bridging the gap between God and man until Jesus' life and this growing divide climaxes in the, the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross for sinners and in His resurrection from the dead. This is the climax. This is the top, the pinnacle of Jesus' work. And this is what you need. This is what you need. Jesus stands before this invalid and said, I am what you need. You don't need these waters. You think you need these things to be healed. You need me. And whatever problem you're going through right now, whatever difficulty you're going through, and the problem of sin in your life, Jesus is standing here and saying, I am what you need. You need me crucified on the cross for your sins. You need me the God-man hanging on the cross so that you can be received and loved by God and accepted by Him. You are spiritually lame and broken and a spiritually paralyzed person. You need me to heal you. You need my broken body so that you can be put back together. You need my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins so that you can be reconciled with God, at peace with God, and in His love forever. Have you received that? Have you just, have you just come to Jesus with open hands and say, I have nothing to give to you, but I need you? The Scripture calls that repentance and faith. Turning away from your sin and clinging to Christ, trusting in Him, trusting in His death for you, in Him taking the place for sinners. And He says those who receive Him like that will receive eternal life. Not simply in the life to come, but now, in the presence, a fullness of joy in Him. But notice this growing divide in verses 16 through 18 over two Two main points that Jesus speaks about. One is the Sabbath. There's this growing divide over the Sabbath. And there's this growing divide over what the Jews consider blasphemy. Right? Claiming to be equal with God. Now the leaders, verse 16 it says, the leaders were persecute, began persecuting Jesus because of the Sabbath. Because he did these things on the Sabbath. But really, they were, he was breaking their man-made rules. But look at Jesus' defense in verse 17. 
In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Because he wasn't only breaking the Sabbath day, but he was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. He was calling God his father. Now, the Jews called God our father, but they didn't really say my father. Jesus distinguishes himself by saying, this is my father. And not only is he my father, basically I'm, I am equal with God. God is working. He's always working, ceaselessly working, yet effortlessly working, and I'm working too. Jesus is identifying Himself with God. And we'll see next week how He does so even more. It's unmistakably, unmistakable. For all those who say that Jesus never said He was God, not true. Absolutely clear in these verses. He is making Himself equal with God. And this makes the Jewish leaders mad. You notice how Jesus says stuff and does stuff and it makes people mad? So for... Legalists, these Jewish leaders who made up their own rules, it makes him mad. He's not submitting to their rules, to their authority. It's all about authority. Jesus is usurping their authority and saying, I'm the one who has authority. I am actually God Himself. And it makes legalists mad. Whenever you usurp a legalist's authority, whenever you don't submit to His rules, you're going to make Him mad. Whenever you say, you know, the Bible doesn't say all that stuff. You don't have to do all that stuff. You're going to make them mad. Uh, and another thing that made them mad is when he made himself equal with God, claiming to be God. So with atheists I've talked to, they're all good and fine with doing good works, serving the poor and clothing the poor, helping those who are in need. They'll go right in beside you, many of them. But when I start saying stuff about Jesus claiming to be God, they think it's silly. It makes them mad. Are you seriously saying that Jesus, this supernatural stuff of Jesus, this man being an infinite God, God doesn't even exist, they would say. And it makes them mad. And it's ultimately both of them are because you're taking someone's authority away from them. Because if God does exist, and if Jesus is God, then the atheist has to do what he says, rather than what they say. See, it's all about, this is all about authority, this growing divide. Are we going to be, uh, settle for our own authority or are we going to give our authority to Jesus where it belongs? It's like a, uh, you, you all know what authority is. It's like the game Simon Says. Simon Says, do this. Let's play a game right now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Simon Says, do this and you do that. Simon Says, do this. And you do that. We all like to play, Simon says, with our husbands, with our wives, with our kids. We all like to play it because we have the authority. Other people get to do what we say. But we don't like it when someone else has authority over us. This is the growing divide. Are we going to keep authority for ourselves? Are we going to do what we want to do in our marriages, in our jobs, in our home life? Are we going to do what... We want to do, or are we going to give that authority back to God where it belongs? We don't want to lay down our authority. The movie Hook was all about what it would be like if Peter Pan had grown up. You ever seen that movie? Hook. So Peter Pan grows up, and he becomes a successful businessman, and he forgets that he's Peter Pan. 
And then one day he's forced back to Neverland by the evil Captain Hook. He goes back to the lost boys. And they don't believe it's really him. And they don't accept him. And they don't follow him. They don't trust him. But when they finally see him for who he is, when they finally see that it is him, that's Peter Pan. When they finally see him for who he is, even Rufio, the one who rejected him, the one who was against him, follows him. And the climactic scene there is when Rufio grabs a sword and starts walking right towards Peter Pan. And you kind of think, what? uh-oh, he's going he's gonna to slice him up. What's he going to do? And Rufio walks right up to Peter Pan. He drops down to his knees and he holds up this sword. And he says, basically, you are Peter Pan. You can fly, you can sword fight, you can crow. You know he does that in Peter Pan. You can crow, you can do everything that Peter Pan can do. You are Peter Pan. Here is your sword. It's not mine anyway. It's yours all along. This belongs to you. You have the authority. It's yours. And they follow him. And this story here in John is meant to do that to us. It's meant to do that to us. All of the Gospel of John is meant to do that to us. That we would recognize, you are the Son of God, Jesus. You are the Messiah. You're the Savior. You're God Almighty. It's meant for us to drop down to our knees and say, this authority is yours. It's not mine. It belongs to you. See, you only give authority to someone you trust. Until you trust Jesus, you won't give it up. So that's the question for us. What will you do with your authority? Will, will you cling on to it? Or will you trust the only one who is worthy to use it for your good and for His glory?